Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Asgoyne. And I'm Cadence Neenan. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we'll discuss the surprising amount of dancing that will be happening in the pandemic edition of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. We will talk about two essential articles written by Black dance artists, Misty Copeland and Gregory King, which dissect the history of racism in dance and then propose ways to work toward inclusion. We will attempt to explain the crowdsourced TikTok Ratatouille musical, aka Ratatouzical. And we'll conclude with our interview with extraordinary dancer Lloyd Knight, who is a longtime principal with the Martha Graham Dance Company and is about to appear in Intermission, which is an online benefit performance for Save the Children. But before we get started, just a bit of housekeeping. Please don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit. And as always, to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening platform of choice. We always love hearing from you all. And if you are not yet getting our newsletter, um, which really this podcast is a companion piece to the newsletter, please go ahead and sign up for that. It's a one minute daily read. You can sign up at thedanceedit.com. Now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, and there are a lot of like capital H headlines this week, some of them heartbreaking and others hopeful. Uh, Unfortunately, we're starting with heartbreak. So as you've likely heard by now, a fire broke out at Jacob's Pillow Tuesday morning, destroying the Doris Duke Theater. The barn, as it is affectionately known, opened in 1990 and was the newer of the Pillow's two indoor stages. No one was hurt in the blaze, and the damage was contained to the one building. It's very lucky that the Tedshawn Theater and the archives were not impacted. Uh, the pillow has already indicated its intentions to rebuild and are working with local authorities. The cause of the fire has yet to be determined. I mean, I, for one, had to stop going on Instagram on Tuesday because uh, the tributes pouring in from so many dance artists who have spent time there um, it was it was just so heartbreaking to read. Yeah, I think that kind of social media outpouring just goes to show that there are a few places that dancers have such an emotional connection to as the pillow. Oh, the Doris Duke was such an intimate, special space. It actually it gives me shivers to think that Kyle Abraham was just talking to us about his residency at the pillow last month mm-hmm. when he was making work in that theater. The Pillow has promised to rebuild, but they have been hit hard by the pandemic, just as all dance organizations have. So if you have the means to give, please do. We will include a link to their donations page in the episode description. The pandemic hit Strictly Come Dancing last week, and boxer Nicola Adams and her partner Katya Jones, the show's first same-sex dancing couple, were forced to drop out of the competition after Jones tested positive for COVID-19. Sending best wishes for a speedy recovery there. Uh, In cheerier news, American Repertory Ballet, located in Princeton, New Jersey, announced its new artistic director, Ethan Stiefel, the former New York City Ballet and ABT star turned director and choreographer, and he will take the helm beginning July 2021. Yeah, and like you said, turned director and choreographer. This is his second go-around as artistic director because he led the Royal New Zealand Ballet from 2011 to 2014. Is that right? Um. Yeah, curious and excited to see what he'll do at ARB. Um, Atlanta Ballet announced that it would postpone the remainder of its 2020-2021 performance season due to the ongoing impact of the pandemic. All of the company's originally announced programming will be moved to new dates in spring 2022. 
Brooklyn Academy of Music President Katie Clark will depart in January to accept another position. She's headed the presenting organization since 2015, and the board is currently considering candidates to fill the position. Choreographer, dancer, and teacher Eileen Pasloff died on Tuesday, November 3rd at age 89 following a five-year fight with cancer. Pasloff, a former member of the Judson Dance Theater, was devoted to all aspects of the form, be it ballet, modern dance, or postmodern dance. She served as an inspiration to generations of dancers, and the dance world will miss her dearly. Uh, Dance Theater of Harlem standout Ingrid Silva graces the latest cover of Vogue Brazil. In the accompanying story, she gets candid about her pregnancy, her activism work, and how those things intersect with her ballet career. And the cover image is just gorgeous. gorgeous cover. Just a chef's kiss. Uh, we got a first look at Netflix's upcoming dance drama, Tiny Pretty Things, an upcoming series adapted from a 2016 novel of the same name. The show is said to be a cross between Pretty Little Liars and Black Swan and follows a group of talented teenagers at an elite, albeit fictional, ballet school in Chicago. The series will debut on Netflix on Monday, December 14th, and the first season will consist of 10 hour-long episodes. Did you guys see on Dance Writer Twitter that people are already putting together drinking games? <laughs> that... <laughs> Absolutely tracks. I, that show, it feels like, has been in the works for 15 for years. I'm, I'm actually, I'm very eager to, to finally see it. So in our next segment, we're actually going to talk about another another piece of headline news. This past week, Macy's revealed who will be performing in its 2020 Thanksgiving Day Parade. And of course, the event has been reworked with social distancing in mind, which means it'll be smaller and much of it will not be happening live. But it will still be, surprisingly, dance-filled. Like, deep into this pandemic Broadway drought, we will be getting much-needed performances from four very dancey Broadway shows. And we'll also be seeing the Rockettes, as usual, and even some world-class ballet to boot. Um, the parade is always fun, but this year it almost feels like a lifeline for artists who have not been able to perform for months, a chance to get back out there on a, on a world stage. Let's talk about who's taking part. Yeah, so I think we're all kind of anticipating that this year's Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is going to look a little different and might feel a bit anticlimactic without the live audience that we're used to seeing. But for ballet and Broadway fans who haven't gotten to see their favorite performers perform in months, it's going to be kind of a brief relief from all of this pandemic craziness. We're getting performances from New York City Ballet, as well as the casts of Hamilton, Mean Girls, Jagged Little Pill, and Ain't Too Proud, all shows that haven't taken the stage since March. And while the performances will be pre-recorded, of course, for pandemic restrictions, it's the closest that we've gotten to the ballet stage or Broadway in more than eight months. Um, everyone involved is receiving coronavirus tests and temperature checks before getting together. Everyone on set is going to be masked up, but the performances can remove their masks to sing, and we can't wait to hear them. Uh, something I'm personally very excited about is Sergio Trujillo, uh, the choreographer of Ain't Too Proud, actually crafted a new number for the five leads uh, for that. And anyone who saw Ain't Too Proud on Broadway knows that like those men know how to work it like they all have insane vocal chops and insane dance chops and you know it's the temptations like the music is so good so that is going to be I think such a highlight um and also I just got really emotional finding out that Ashley Bowder is gonna do Sugar Plum mm -hmm. just the fact that that like that one little nugget of City Ballet is Nutcracker is still happening somewhere some, somewhere in the universe and just yeah. like that really like it got me I got choked up thinking about it yeah you know I'm not usually 
a super big fan of these kind of huge corporate productions. But Mm. kudos to Macy's because they did seek out artists who haven't been able to perform during the pandemic, which is why we're seeing Ashley Bowder. They sought out New York City Ballet. Then they're also integrating performers who are supposed to appear at the St. Patrick's Day Parade and the Pride March and the National Puerto Rican Day Parade and the West Indian American Day Carnival Association. That's kind of lovely. Like those are some decisions that feel authentically empathetic in a time when we the performing arts community needs empathy. And it also feels very New York. That's what I was just in thinking. A, in a way that I, you know, like there's been all this like hoopla over the past couple of months of New York is dead and like everyone who's been here this entire time is like no stop it go away. Um <laughs> but this like feeling of having like so much of the city's cultural life being uh highlighted in this way, despite the times that we are in, uh, is really heartening. Courtney, do you feel thankful, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> uh, yes, something to be thankful for, something to look forward to. So in our next segment, we're going to talk about two pieces of required reading that came out this past week. First, ballerina Misty Copeland published a deeply personal essay in the Players' Tribune. It's called Technique Has No Color. And it talks about the years of racism she experienced in ballet. And it also, she says that the combination of COVID and the murder of George Floyd seemed to have shifted dance world conversations about race in a way that she has not seen before. And then dancer and educator Gregory King published a piece in Dance Magazine called Exclusion is Oppression from Pedagogy to Performance, which viewed the history of racism in dance with a a wider lens, looking at how it has led to the erasure of Black forms from dance curricula and how it's led to the appropriation of Black culture by white artists who then reject the creators of that culture. And like Copeland, he points to this current racial reckoning as an opportunity and suggests some ways to fully grasp that opportunity. So we will link to both stories in the episode description. Of course, they are powerful testimony. But right now we want to talk specifically about the two writers' commentary about how in this pivotal moment we can move the dance world toward equity. Um, So as Margaret said, this is very much one of those moments where I'm going to encourage you, dear listener, to go do this reading uh, because we can only paraphrase so much. uh, And it's really powerful hearing this in their own words. Something that really struck me was reading Misty's essay. It is such like a very raw and personal account of being for a very long time the only black woman dancing at American Ballet Theater. Uh, before she made history as the first uh, black female principal dancer there. And one of the things she said that was so striking to me was like, after four or five years at the company, she almost stopped dancing. Which, you know, thinking about modern dance history and thinking about the fact that she is arguably the most recognizable ballerina in the country, if not the world, and that we wouldn't have that narrative that wouldn't have happened had she walked away then. And she credited uh, working with Arthur Mitchell and Dance Theater of Harlem for giving her inspiration to keep going. But uh, kind of switching gears to Gregory King, something he talked about is that when we talk about just singular uh, exceptional individuals who are noted in like the canon of dance history, quote unquote, in a way that is it's both highlighting the exclusion of other black dancers and dancers of color as well as, in a way, it can be easy to lose sight of the history that just isn't taught, that mm-hmm. Misty, exi- like Misty, for example, exists as part of a lineage of Black dancers who were making change. 
uh, and who were trailblazers. Yeah, I thought one of the most powerful quotes in um, Gregory King's article is he said, the black dancing body is a place where history also lives. And he talks a lot Mm. about how a lot of dance history classes really don't teach about the black icons in the dance world. They primarily focus on white artists. And in his experience in those classes, there's very little critical discourse around the historical contributions of black artists. He also quotes Michael Medcalf, now an assistant professor of dance at University of Memphis, as saying, there is no dance history without black dance history. And how these classes are missing something, but also inherently oppressing Black dancers by not including their works and their contributions to the dance world in these kinds of educational classes. A point that is also made is there has to be an acknowledgement that the dance history that is frequently taught right now, not only is it a history of Western concert dance, it is taught very much through a white lens. Mm -hmm. And because oftentimes in American culture and society, the accepted lens is the white viewpoint, it's not questioned, it's not interrogated. And so decentering whiteness, it, it's a key thing that has to happen in order for us to appreciate dance history and all of its complexity and acknowledging the contributions of Black creators. Does this sound familiar to you listeners? We talk about this a lot. <laughs> flashback to Jaliah Harmon and TikTok and Renegade. Yeah, both Copeland and King talk about the importance of representation, not just in dance history and even recent dance history, like TikTok dance history qualifies as dance history, but representation more broadly speaking in the dance world. Copeland talks about how what brought her back after she was when she was at that point where she was ready to leave ABT was working with Dance Theater of Harlem and being surrounded by black ballet dancers, people who looked like her, which she said recharged her batteries at a time when she was so exhausted from just trying to convince everyone that she belonged. And and King echoes that by saying that black dancing bodies should be present not only in dance history courses, but also in all spaces where dance happens. Mm. Um, He encourages the hiring, casting, and promotion of dancers based on talent rather than look or fit, and then the creation of environments where BIPOC feel comfortable, altering dress codes and hairstyles that can negatively impact their experience. So yes, encouragement from both of these artists and writers to talk openly and candidly about race, to amplify BIPOC voices in that discussion without relying on those artists to do the work and to improve representation at all levels of your organization. So you're creating studio and classroom and theater environments that are welcoming to all people and communities. Mm -hmm. Please go read them. (laughs) In in short, please go read them. Okay, a hard shifting of gears now in our final roundtable segment today. We're going to talk about the phenomenon known as ratatusical. Cadence, did you did you coin that cadence? That feels like a cadence. After thing. I saw I it know. in the dance edit, I actually immediately messaged Margaret and say, "Did you coin this? I need to know." <laughs> no, I wish that I or one of us could take credit for that. No, the the wider internet came up with it first. But it's a musical based on Disney's movie Ratatouille, written collectively by musical theater TikTok, which you can take a second to process that and then. Come back to us. Okay. So the whole thing started with one funny snippet of original TikTok audio by user M. Jax. It was a tribute in song to Remy from Ratatouille. And then fans of that clip proposed a complete Ratatouille musical. And that then sparked a full-on TikTok trend with dozens of people writing songs and creating choreography and even making full-on set designs for this hypothetical musical. 
everything about this is delightful. We just wanted to squee over it for a minute. But there are also larger conversations to be had here, first of all, about the growing audience for Broadway content on TikTok and how that might benefit, you know, in real life, Broadway down the line. And second, about the potential of crowdsource content in dance and theater. Like, is Ratatouzical the future of the musical? Is this where we're going? So I'm going to start with the squeeing. And I really, y'all, I'm going to try to keep myself controlled because once I start thinking about Ratatouzical, I get like a little unhinged. Um, but basically, this all began with, as Margaret said, a TikTok video featuring a song all about Remy, the rat protagonist of Ratatouille. Obviously, TikTok users took it upon themselves to transform it into a full orchestration complete with a chorus, an emotional crescendo, staging suggestions, and later a minor key reprise of that theme for Remy's downfall. And I have to say, all of the songs that TikTok users are creating for this imaginary musical are kind of- They're really they're good. amazing. Like TikToker Gabby Bull or Fettuccine Feta Queen on TikTok, she composed and truly inspired song for the first act written for Remy's dad as he tries to convince his son to be content with the life of a rat. And then another TikTok user duetted with it, performing original choreography, using props, and really some great acting. And while we don't know who exactly is behind the Ratatouille musical TikTok page, they have done a call out for songwriters, dancers, actors, and artists to collaborate on the Ratatouzical project. So I'm just seeing a lot of room for growth here. Very excited about the prospect. Do we do we still not know who that is behind that account? Did he reveal himself? I, I do not know. I don't know. Maybe I like okay. the enigma of it. This is just... Ratatouzical <laughs> belongs to all of us, I think. Exactly. Yes. Belongs to the hive mind. So the, I'm still not on TikTok, but I suspect that kind of the portion of the internet that it occupies, I imagine is also the portion of the internet that is like very much like essentially self-educated on musical theater through like voraciously listening to cast albums and i this has like a similar energy for me to like the be more chill fandom mm. which like for those of you who don't know be more chill was like an off-broadway musical that had a very short run thought that was the end of it the cast album comes out the cast album goes viral and then be more chill ends up on broadway because of like fans on the internet who just love the music so much and wanted to see it staged this has like such similar energy and i love that about it and you know we already have seen the effectiveness of like TikTok marketing, even if it's not any sort of traditional marketing scheme or any kind of scheme, really, if it's just organic, it can be so effective for Broadway. Like Hamilton TikTok was just where I lived for a solid couple of months this summer after Hamilton came out. It is a great way to reach not just olds like me, but more specifically the Gen Z crowd that Broadway will really need to get into theaters once shows are back on stage. In a similar vein, I'm just going to take a chance to really briefly rant about the premature death of Beetlejuice again, because I don't think there's a show that utilized TikTok better than Beetlejuice. Presley Ryan, who was the understudy and later filled in for the role of Lydia Dietz in Beetlejuice, got on TikTok with her co-star Alex Brightman, who is a general amazing person. And the Beetlejuice popularity grew on TikTok substantially to the point that 
between the months of September and November of 2019, 54.95% of the audience members attending Beetlejuice had never bought Broadway tickets before. A little over 70% of their audience were between the ages of 19 and 54, which is crazy for Broadway. That never happens. It's an incredibly young audience, and it's because Beetlejuice was able to connect with TikTok users in particular. People loved the music on TikTok, and that's how they grew a huge portion of their fan base. The hashtag Beetlejuice musical has been used more than 40 million times on tiktok videos so i just think what yes we have to consider that this is potentially the app for captivating a young broadway audience and and for maybe finding the next generation of broadway stars Mm -hmm. why not there is incredible talent out there what a fabulous way to discover it you know all the power to the theater kids honestly like I know I've just so enjoyed watching like theater kid friends like posting duets and like all those things and I love this um what we would refer to in the D&D community as trash crafting of these like <laughs> set designs like you know just like oh yeah I have some cereal boxes I'm gonna turn this into like a stage design like to scale like I and just it's brilliant mm-hmm. like I love the DIYness of it and also just as an aside did you guys know this is low-key happening with Avatar The Last Airbender too? That is fascinating. I love that. Which, like, I would love an Avatar The Last Airbender musical as long as the original creators were involved. But don't get me on another rant. Anyway. But I also feel like in this era of the jukebox musical, where it's common to have multiple songwriters contribute to a Mm. show, it doesn't feel that far-fetched to have a crowdsourced musical. Let let the cream rise to the top of TikTok. (laughs) That was such a strange metaphor. The TikTok top. Anyway, what we're saying is we love this. A lot. And if you need a form of escapism, this is a pretty good one. Pretty darn good. All right. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will have our interview with Lloyd Knight. So stay tuned. Welcome back, dance friends. I am here with extraordinary artist Lloyd Knight. Hi, Lloyd. Thank you. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Um, Lloyd is a principal dancer at the Martha Graham Dance Company, which he joined in 2005. He has been amused to a pretty incredible list of choreographers, Nacho Duato, Lar Lubovitch, Kyle Abraham, Michelle Dorrance, Pam Tanowitz, Stephen Petronio, Matt Zuck. That's just a partial list of all the people who have made work on him. He is currently a guest principal artist for the Royal Ballet of Flanders, and he is about to appear in Intermission, which is an online performance featuring 10 star dancers benefiting Save the Children. So welcome, Lloyd. Thanks for joining on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> um, I wish our listeners could see what your your environment right now because you're wearing <laughs> this incredible blouse and you're in this sort of like beautiful Instagram friendly setup. <laughs> well, this is I'm kind of um, redoing the space that I'm in, and I love plants, so I'm like, <laughs> there's I have a plant in front of me, <laughs> like I have them all over. A plant baby. <laughs> Um, Can you actually, can you talk, first of all, just about where you are right now and where you've been weathering the pandemic? Um, I am currently in New York City. Um, I live in Washington Heights, and I've been here since the get-go, from the beginning. Um, I probably left for maybe, like, two weekends total. Yeah. But I've been here ever since. A familiar story for 
a lot of us, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it seems like you've actually managed to stay relatively busy during quarantine. Can you talk a little about some of the dance projects that you have been able to do these past few months? Yeah. Oh my God. There's been so many. Um, I've been lucky enough to stay artistic, which is nice. Um, let's see. I think I started with um, a video for DRA with Stephen Petronio. Dancers responding to AIDS. Yeah. With one of his great dancers, Nicholas, um, on a video titled Lonesome. So I did that. Um, I have done... Uh, the most recently state of darkness by melissa finley um for the joyce incredible solo that was amazing that was it's always been a dream of mine to do a solo ride of spring so I, that was just like epic for me i'm really i'm going through withdrawals right now actually that i'm not <laughs> rehearsing that anymore um what else um graham we've um We've done some virtual teaching. We had um, a reconstruction of a piece, Immediate Tragedy. So we worked on that. And we're still like making videos for our Patreon and whatnot. Um, and I can't even remember what, <laughs> what else. Well, you did some some work with Katzban too, right? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> there's been so much. Um, yeah, Katzman was epic, actually. Katzman, I got to go. Um, I was on the artistic um, advisory committee, which was amazing. So helping to pick what artist was there and how they really wanted to um, curate the shows mm -hmm. for this summer, because it was their kickoff summer, which was amazing. Um, and especially during this time. So um, I got to perform a piece by that was choreographed by Tamisha Guy from AIM. Um, and then I went back and I actually got to choreograph on James Whiteside, a piece called Glimmer, which was amazing. Oh, and is that the same Glimmer that you'll be performing in intermission, the same solo? Yes, a version. A version. I'm not the same as James. <laughs> But yes, that, that same piece. Um, this is kind of a big, complicated question that I think we're all still figuring out. But how mm -hmm. have you seen the pandemic change the way that you approach or think about your art, if it has? Um, I feel like it definitely, at least for me, I've always, I love dance. I love everything about it. But the minute... Like if you have an injury, for example, the minute the threat comes that it's going to be taken away, I've like it re-engages my passion mm -hmm. for dance and the arts. And, you know, when this pandemic happened, at least for me, I didn't really know that much about it. And we were only off for like the first week. So take a week off, see how it goes. So, you know. It's just like, okay, we have a week off. And then it just became longer. And I'm like, oh my God, what's happening? Like, I want to take dance class. I want to go out. I want to be with my friends, you know, perform. So this definitely has, um, when I do get the chance to dance now, it's really, it's an epic feeling. Mm -hmm. So for example, me performing at the Joyce, 
even though audience members weren't there, that feeling of being back on a real stage with lights and a costume and no feeling can ever, um, nothing can ever replace that. Yeah. Just missing theater spaces so much. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's important. And I mean, Kotzbein, they did an incredible job of just having the work and the show accessible for all people. So even if you didn't want to sit in the chairs that they had lined up, they had a line available for cars. So if you really wanted to stay in your car and just watch from a distance, you could. So it was, it, it's just nice to see that um, people, they want, they want live theater and they want to experience it and live it again. And shout out to Stella and Sonia at Kotzban for doing yes. such a fantastic job with that. Yes. Um, so you've also been, I mean, for a long time, but especially over the past few months, a really thoughtful voice in this ongoing reckoning that the dance world is having with racism. Yes. How Can you talk a little about how you have engaged with that work recently and, and what it means to you as both a dance artist and then also just as a person? Yeah. Um, well, it affected me very deeply. I I am very namyo horenge cure, like namaste, peace, everybody gets along. Um, maybe it's, it's very naive of me or whatnot, but um, I don't know. I just don't see a place for that here, or especially in my life and the people that I associate with. So when everything hit in the middle of a pandemic, it hit me really hard and I felt really, um, I felt lost and confused and I questioned the people around me, which I've never done before. It might've like gone through my head very quickly, but I just quickly, you know, escaped it. I pushed it to the side, so. Um, it made me question a lot my environment, the people that I work for. And I, I think it's, I think it came at a good, I was gonna say a good spot in history and time because um, it made people really wake up and acknowledge what's going on around us, especially in the dance community. And things haven't been right for a while in a lot of organizations and it, it it was it was needed and at least for myself you know i didn't even know like i was saying i didn't even realize it until it happened so i went out to protests and which was so liberating for me to get my voice out there and people asked me to speak on panels which was great as well and just hearing other dancers stories because although i hear from word of mouth here and there to see these faces and to hear these stories is so it's so powerful and it was it's it's been a journey yeah an, an ongoing one yeah. um it does seem like we have started hearing thank goodness from more voices about their experiences with racism mm -hmm. and that there's been this sort of rise of the dancer as activist um yes. spurred by both the protests and also the pandemic, like these multiple simultaneous crises happening. 
-hmm. Why do you think dancers make especially powerful activists? And how can a dance itself be a work of advocacy or activism? Um, well, we have so much passion in us already. <laughs> um, I always say dance is like, I think there's a clip in Fame actually, where each like, each art says that they're the hardest, uh -huh. like drama, uh -huh. music, but dances, I feel like dancers, we're, we're the toughest. Because we don't, I, as far as I'm concerned, we don't get enough, enough acknowledgement. We work just as hard as any football player, what have you, mm -hmm. and don't get paid enough. You know, we work really hard and our training, our work ethic is unlike any other that I've seen. So we just have that passion in us and that drive and we want to see change. We want to be in a great community because we use our body. So we can't be in toxic situations. We don't, we don't need that. We don't want it. So, I mean, for that reason, that's why I feel like dancers are the best for this because of, of, because of those facts. Um, and then dance, it's just something I always hear from outsiders when they see dance being performed, even if it's little clips online um, of somebody improving, they connect to that because it's the human body moving. Uh, and they feel that emotion coming from the screen or if it's live. So, I mean, I think dance is very relatable to everyone, even if they don't dance, if they're not dancers, you can, see somebody move and feel something from it really deeply. Yeah, kinetic, kinetic empathy. Yeah, yeah. it's so powerful. Yeah. Um, bigger picture, what changes do you think that dance institutions need to make most urgently um, to ensure that first of all, they make it through the pandemic? And mm. second, that they come out on the other side more equitable and more inclusive? Mm. Well, I, I feel like a lot of the big institutions, especially, they need to trust their dancers more mm -hmm. um, because they artists are very creative. So even if you ask your dancers, you know, what do you, what do you think people want to see during this pandemic or to help us push through and see the other side? I think you'll get a lot of good responses because it's really smart. And um, yeah, I think it's just, they have powerful voices that don't necessarily get heard all the time. So if you just crack the door open a little bit, <laughs> you'll get them. Um, and as far as the race issue, I think it's just, I don't even understand how especially American companies could even be that way still right now. We're about to be in 2021. So it starts from even if you have a school accepting more minorities in the school, um, taking them into the company. You know, there's one thing to, going back to the school, there's one thing to have, you know, let's say, 
10 black kids in your school but then what are you doing after that like are you really are you really grooming them to be in the company after that and then when they are in the company are you going to showcase them mm -hmm. so just taking the steps that you would with any other person and obviously looking outside of the the color barrier because it's just it's, it's unnecessary at this point. I mean, I'm saying stuff that everybody has said already, but. But still needs to be heard. Yeah, it just still needs to be done. Um, and then, I mean, also you have the stage aspect, but then behind, behind the scenes, how you talk, how you speak to people and watching the words that you use when you talk to, you know, Black people. For example, you know, there's a certain way that you talk to people in general. It's not that you change your speech just because you're talking to them. So I like that you brought up the school to company pipeline issue, how it's not just getting students of color to enroll in your school. It's providing them with the pathways that they need to a professional career if that's what they want to pursue. So you don't see the like dropout rates along the way that historically have been yeah. seen because they don't have role models. They don't have somebody helping them. Um, yeah, they need that push, especially as if you're if you don't really have that person, that cheerleader behind you, pushing you, telling you can do, you can do this, go after this company, go follow this person, email this person. You, you, you just need that drive. You need that community behind you to let you know that you are worth it and you can make it. Mm -hmm. So now let's shift gears a little bit and talk about um, the reason this interview is happening at this particular moment, which is mm -hmm. that your participation in the upcoming intermission performance and fundraiser. Yeah. Um, so how did you first become involved with this project and how would you describe its vision? Why does it resonate with you? Um, well, it's artistic director Sebastian <laughs> approached me and um, I was so shocked. <laughs> I was very shocked. Um, also was during Corona. So I was like, wow, people are really, I was just amazed that people were still pushing forward with ideas and wanted to wanting to get things done. And of course, it's for a really great cause, which is save the children. And I think that's beautiful. I, I also too, in the future, hopefully, would like to um, do fundraisers for children, especially children in the arts. So this really hit a chord with me. And yeah, I just wanted to contribute. And, you know, there's dancers from all over and they just really made the effort to, to film each person nicely and still in the precautions for Corona and whatnot. So it's going to be a really great a great, 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 great performance. Have you already filmed the solo that you'll be doing, that Glimmer solo? I have. Can you can you talk a little bit about what that process was like? Um, it was well, it was challenging because it was outside. 
So it's just dealing with those elements. Always an adventure, <laughs> yeah. It's always an adventure, but I trusted the team, the camera crew, and, you know, they want to make everybody look good. So, you know, we did what we did. Um, we were in Brooklyn, and it's a great view of the city behind me. And you, it's, it's also, it was also great to do that in the streets of New York um, during this time, being creative during this time. So it was fun. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> and so, I mean, Sebastian's, uh, he's a principal artist. He's a principal ballet dancer and he's been around for a while. So he has a good eye and it was, it was really helpful to have him come down and take part in the filming to make sure everything was okay. Sebastian Vinay, is that right? Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit too about any other projects that are on the horizon for you? Uh, well, right now I'm just teaching a lot, which is really, it's fulfilling. I didn't think I would ever be teaching this much, <laughs> but it's been, it's been fun. And Continuing on with Graham, of course, um, we have some things coming up, some projects, and that's about it right now. If you hear of any jobs, let me know. <laughs> let me know. I'm totally down um, to perform again and just, just stay artistic um, as much as possible. Um, it's, it's so many dancers have said recently that they've been doing so much more teaching than they used to. Yeah. It seems like one of the small silver linings of the pandemic is giving professional dance artists who are so talented this chance to explore that avenue. Um, yeah. And also to explore it in so many different locations. You can teach in theory anywhere. It's all over Zoom. So It's been fun and also seeing who has who is teaching. Because you would never think of those people, maybe not not that I don't see them as teachers, but you don't you you should see them performing. Mm -hmm. You never think of them in that light. So to see them teach, and you're like, oh my god, you're a really good teacher. Like that's good pointers. It's it's fun. It's good. And I mean, also the fact when I do teach, um, sometimes I tell the kids, I'm like there's no reason why you can't stay inspired right now, especially because you can take class with almost any artist. I mean, you could take class with um, dancers from the Paris Opera right now, from Russia, from it's, it's Wendy Whalen's teaching. It's great. What, what things have been keeping you inspired and motivated through this strange moment? Um, my friends and just seeing also students, seeing, seeing them like push and the drive to keep going. And it's, it's really, it's really beautiful to witness. Um, I started teaching at LaGuardia High School, the fame school. Fame, yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's really, I mean, first of all, to be teaching during this time. So, you know, there are many restrictions and distances and masks and whatnot. They have to stay in a certain distance within um, confines in the class. But you see these students and they still want it. 
and that drive is so it's there and you know sometimes you know i might feel a little bit burnt out you know and it's nine o'clock in the morning and i'm like okay let's teach all right <laughs> but you know when you get in front of them and they're warmed up and they're ready to go and they want to learn and they want to move forward and it's really that inspires me a lot looking on instagram and seeing all these dancers and artists all over the world, still going. You know, people, they have work to do. We all have work to do and we're ready for theaters to open up. We're ready for everything to happen. And, you know, till that time comes, we're still gonna keep pushing. That's kind of a lovely note to end on, actually. Uh (laughs) Um, We really appreciate you sharing your perspective with us, Lloyd. Um, please thank you for having me yeah thank you for joining us and please make sure to watch light and the other fabulous artists participating in intermission which i believe is set to premiere december 10th is that right we'll include a, a link in the episode description with more information about that thanks again lloyd thank you have a good day I know this is such a small thing, but I do really wish you all had seen the interior of Lloyd's apartment because it's just the most beautiful Zen space. And I really hope I'm not alone in having developed a minor obsession with dancers' home interiors during the pandemic now that we're finally getting glimpses of all of them. You should like pitch Architectural Digest or something. They do dancers. Agree. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they just did a roundup of all the dancers they featured. Anyway. Thank you again, Lloyd. Please be sure to follow Lloyd on Instagram at L-L-O-Y-D-K-N-I-G-H-T to keep up with all of his projects. And then for more information about Intermission, which again will premiere online December 10th and will benefit Save the Children, please follow at intermission.dance on Instagram. And we'll also link directly to the event Save the Children donation page in the episode description. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week, and we'll actually be back a day early, just a note, on Wednesday for a special Thanksgiving episode. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoin, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.